Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter number one, and we'll begin reading in verse 21. And the word of the Lord reads, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the sy- their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. One of the truths that I have embraced in my life, and a truth that I've continually gravitated towards over and over again, is the fact that I am a lifetime learner. Because the fact is you just never stop learning. Even if, even if you're out of school, right? even if you are now on Thanksgiving or Christmas break, even if you don't like to read books, even if you don't take any more classes, even if you don't like to learn things, you are still learning. You never, ever, ever stop learning. Because especially in today's day and age, you kind of have to keep learning, right? With, with technology, like, like how do I operate my cell phone? I mean, I don't know if you, I think many of you remember there was a time in your life when operating a cell phone was, I mean, operating a phone was pretty easy. You just walked up to the one on the wall or on the table and you picked it up and you just dialed a number, right? And then you just kind of stood there and talked. Well, now, you know, you pick up the phone and, you know, it's push a button, swipe to the right, enter in your password, look at it, make sure it recognizes your face, put your thumbprint or whatever. And then you actually have to then go to an app to call because it's not only a phone, but it does a whole bunch of other things as well, right? And technology is constantly, constantly changing, right? And it's not just your phone, right? Technology is also changing in your cars. How many, I know there are probably a few guys, maybe my age, a little bit older, remember the times when you could actually like work on cars by yourself, right? You pull it into the garage or under the, the shade tree, you know, and you could actually, like, you know, swap out a whole engine, right? But nowadays, you look at that and you go, okay, close the hood and then let's take it to the mechanic. And it's even the same, side, same thing inside the car, too. There's more technology on the dash of many cars today than there was in all of Boron High School, like, 20 years ago, right? And, and, it's, and it's the same thing with even, like, television, right? I mean, technology has changed the way people watch TV. How many of you actually live stream television on the internet instead of actually like cable, right? More, more and more of you, right? Yeah. You know, Netflix and all the other, other things and that sort. That's right. Um, well, the, the fact of the matter is, is technology, you know, has cha- it really kind of forces us to have to learn. We have to learn new versions of, of Microsoft Word. We have to learn new versions of the different software. Even all the apps on your phone, they're always updating it or relearn that stuff. Well, it's the same thing with, with technology. It's the same thing also with the law. The laws are always changing. What was legal before now is illegal, and what was illegal is now legal, even though it probably should still be illegal, right? And, and I mean, how many of you remember the time when, when you used to get, like, ride in the back of a pickup truck, like, down the freeway as a kid, right? There, it actually it did happen, right? Well, now they'll just throw you under the jail if you do something like that, right? 
Or, or, or maybe the time when you could actually like drive down the road and no one hassled you when you were like doing this, when you had the phone to your ear. Like that wasn't illegal, but, but suddenly now it is. Well, you have to keep learning to, to keep up with the laws and you have to keep learning about your finances because, you know, I mean, it's, it's important to know things about retirements and taxes and you just have to continually learn those things. And, and also, you also need to learn about the world around you because that is also presenting you challenges and and. You know, and it's changing constantly. And you need to keep learning about, you know, about your spouse and how to be a better spouse, right? Because no one was ever born a good, perfect husband. And if you think you, you were, then, then your wife's lying to you, okay? I'm sorry. Just, but, but you have to keep learning to be a better spouse. And you have to, be, you have to learn about your kids and their, and their friends and who they're hanging out with. And you have to keep learning new skills and procedures at work because there's a manager that's never, ever satisfied to leave things the way they are, right? They always have to just keep changing things. And you need to keep learning as a coach, um, but most importantly, you never stop learning when it comes to your faith. Because you need to know more about Jesus. You absolutely need to know more about him. You need to know more about the, the nature and the character of God. You need to know more about who you are in the light of who God is. You need to learn more and more about the gospel. You need to learn more about the word of God. When it comes to your faith, you need to be a committed lifetime learner. Because that's, th- that's how you grow. It is through learning you know, and studying the word of God. It's how you grow. That's why Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your minds. Right? As you learn about God, you are renewed. As you learn about God, you grow in your faith. And as you grow in your faith, your relationship with him goes stronger. And the peace and the joy that you experience gets deeper. And your confidence and his ability to rescue you and save you becomes more firm. And so learning and continuing to learn is important. And it's important that you learn what you can when you can. And you should learn everything you can from, from everyone you can. Whether, whether it's experts in the field who can answer all your questions. Or even people who, who really make gigantic mistakes and fall down on their face. I mean, you can learn a lot from other people's mistakes. Like, don't do that. Right? Now... You can learn from, from just about anyone if you will just pay attention to the details. You can, you can even learn important things about your faith from a demon. Now, that might sound strange to you, but you can. You can learn a lot from a demon. In fact, there, today in the text, there is a demon in this story, and you can learn a lot from him in this part of the narrative. Right? In, in fact, understand, I'm not, now I want you to realize, I'm not saying, okay, I'm not saying go looking for a demon to teach you something, okay? That's, that's bad, right? I mean, the, the reality is, is you don't want to have an encounter with supernaturally like that. And I have friends and family members who have, who have experienced some of those things, and it can be very intimidating and scary. So that's, that's not what I'm advocating here. But there is a demon that appears in this part of the story, right, that, that has a direct encounter with Jesus. And this encounter can really teach us a lot about who Christ is. It can teach us a lot about, about who, who, who we are. And it can also teach us a lot about salvation itself. So, so turn with me to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, and we'll take, we'll take this text apart here. It begins, and it reads, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, if you will remember, if you've been here for, since we started this series, John the Baptist was the first character really introduced, preaching the, the word in the wilderness, a message of repentance. He's calling people to repentance, and then he was baptizing people in the, the Jordan River who had repented of their sins in preparation of the coming Messiah. 
right? He said, there's somebody coming after me that's greater than me. And then out of nowhere, Jesus shows up, this obscure man from Nazareth that nobody knew. He shows up, and, and he's baptized by John, but he's not baptized for the repentance of his sins because he never needed to repent. He's sinless, but he's baptized in order to, to identify with sinful sinners, to become one of us in a, in a sense. And he was baptized also to acknowledge the truth of John's, of John's message, Right? And then as we noted, immediately afterwards, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by the devil. Right? Jesus went from baptism and immediately got engaged into a, a, a battle with the enemy. Jesus, using the sword of, of the Spirit, defeats the, the devil. As we talked about before, this confrontation was really why Jesus came. He came to, to get into a fight with the devil. He came to fight alongside of us. And this battle was, was really the, uh, one of many battles that would take place on the earth. And then right after that, Jesus begins his public ministry. As he begins preaching the gospel, the good news, and declaring that the time is now. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. He preached the, the good news and he called people to respond to the good news by repenting of their sins and believing in the truth of the gospel. And then right after that, Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee and he calls his first four disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, James, and, and John, and, 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 and they begin to follow him. Because he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they follow him. They leave everything behind and they start following him. And the first place that they follow him to is Capernaum, a city on the north shore of Galilee. And it's the home of Andrew and, and Peter. Right? And while they're there, on that Sabbath, which is the Jewish day of rest, it starts from Friday evening, goes all the way to, to Saturday evening. Right? While they're there, um, the, Jesus and the disciples on that Saturday attend the, the synagogue in, in Capernaum, which is the custom of all observant Jews at the time. Right? On Saturday, they would gather together for worship, and they would, they would, they would have a reading of, of Scripture, and somebody would exposit and explain the, the text, which is kind of like, a Christ, like the Christian service here. Right? Now, now, it says that Jesus not only went to the synagogue, though, he actually, became, he actually taught in that synagogue. They actually asked him to preach, which, is, which really tells us a couple things about, about him and about what was going on. Because, number one, there was a custom to have guest speakers who, who came to town read the text for the next day, right? and, and at, their, at the request of the leader, they would actually preach. Now, number two, these guest speakers were typically people that were respected um, they were respected rabbis and well-known uh, speakers. And so what this means is Jesus was personally invited by the leader of the synagogue to, to speak. And number two, that he was already respected as a rabbi, which means Jesus' gospel message was getting around. Right? Jesus was proclaiming this gospel, you know, the good news, and people were starting to hear it. And so he became kind of like the, the, the speaker everybody wants to hear. Him and, and John the Baptist were people that were, were sought after to talk. And so they wanted to hear his message, and they were, they were excited, right? They, he had an exciting message to proclaim. And so Jesus, you know, didn't disappoint them. So that Saturday, he began, and it says in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Right? Not as the scribes. Now the word astonished here really is kind of, is kind of tame for the context because, because it can be better expressed out of the Greek as, um, as, as shocked. Right? You know, it was a, it was a, they were shocked. 
it, or, or taken aback. It like really hit them like really hard. The, the teaching was, was, it just really kind of set them back in their chair. I mean, how many of you have ever been to church and listened to a message that kind of hits you like a sledgehammer? Okay, yeah, all right, okay, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's kind of the, the, the point here. In fact, how many of you have ever listened to Paul Washer's um, shocking youth message? Okay, all right. So those of you who have listened to that shocking youth message, did it hit you like a sledgehammer? Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, and so on a side note, if you've never listened to that message, you just go to YouTube, type in Paul Washer. The very first message that pops up is the shocking youth message. It's the most listened to sermon in the entire world. Now, I will say, like, there's lots of sermons to listen to, but that should be one of the top ten that you should because, it, you know, it does. It's hard-hitting. And this, it's kind of the point here, right? You know, um, they heard a message from Jesus, and it hit him like a sledgehammer, right? It was, it was impactful because he spoke with an authority that they'd never heard before, right? Jesus spoke with, with an authority that was authentic, that didn't come from the outside. You see, the rabbis um, and the teachers of the law and the scribes, as they were called at the time, they were very well known for their, their expository you know, expertise. They, they were good at, at, at reading the text and explaining and interpreting the texts, and they were known for their towering intellect, and they were, they were known for their deep insights, but these men never, ever spoke in their own authority. They never ever said, they never said, I say. They, they, they always spoke in somebody else's authority, whether it was a, a previous teacher, right? They would lean on other teachers' authority, or they would lean on the, 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 the authority of, of, of Scripture. They would lean on the authority of the traditions that were developed at the time. They, were, they would lean on the authority of reason, but they never spoke in their own authority. But Jesus spoke in his own authority. In fact, if you remember some of the texts that Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus spoke in his own authority. Now, Mark doesn't really tell us what this sermon was about. He doesn't give us an account of, of what, what, was, what was said. All he says, all he tells us is this message hit him like a sledgehammer, that it was a shocking message. And they, and, and, and they declared that they had never heard anyone preach like this. They never heard anyone talk to them the way that he had. They'd never seen anybody exercise that kind of biblical authority um, that Christ was using. And, and this message was so powerful and it was so authoritative that it, that it brings Jesus right into another conflict with the spiritual forces of darkness. Remember, as we talked about, Jesus came to get into the fight with the enemy to fight alongside of us. And Jesus exerting his authority in, in, in his declaration of the word of God immediately brings the enemies out looking for a fight. And the reason for that is because the preaching of the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, even, even if you go share the gospel, that is a direct offensive attack on the kingdom of darkness. That is, that is, the, that is how we attack the enemy is, is the proclamation of the word and the preaching of the gospel. The preaching is taking the fight to the enemy and the enemy always fights back. Notice what it says. And immediately, right? Immediately, this context here means he's preaching and Right then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus preaches this authoritative message, and immediately there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Now, this term unclean spirit, right, there are a lot of theologians that want to take this a lot of different ways, but really, it can only be boiled down to two things. Either it means evil spirit or a demon, right? There's, there's no really other, other ways to, to translate that. That's what it means. And what you need to understand is is that, 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 that Mark is not describing an evil man, 
okay? This is not just somebody who was, who was a really, really bad man. This is not a man with a psychological condition. As, as some people would like to presuppose, modern, modern theologians would like to take the, the supernatural out of the equation and, and, and say that, that, that maybe he has a psychological condition. This is not a man suffering from depression. This is not a man suffering from bipolar disorder. He's not suffering from schizophrenia or multiple, multiple personalities. This is a man possessed by a demon, a fallen angel, a soldier in the army of Satan. So this is not a metaphor, this is, this is not an allegory, this is not some emotional condition that he's suffering from, this is a real encounter with a demon. And what that means to you and me is that demons exist. Right? I want you to hear me on this, demons do exist. Again, in our postmodern, in our post-enlightenment world, there are people who just don't want to believe that. They don't want to believe that there is demons, or that there is a devil, or that there is a hell, Right? And so they reject all supernatural explanations and they just take this text and they try to write it off as an allegory or just a spiritual myth to convey some hidden truth. But when you read the text, when you look at the words that are used, even if you go to the Greek, you'll see that that's not what's communicated here at all. Jesus, God in the flesh, in the very first, we're still in the first chapter, in the first chapter encounters the devil himself in, uh, during his temptation and then here at the synagogue he encounters a demon. So demons do exist. But notice what it says. There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Right? You see, this demon that he encountered was not encountered in a bar. He didn't encounter this demon at a pagan temple. He didn't encounter this, this demon you know, at, at, at a house of ill repute or, or Walmart where all the other demons hang out. I'm, I'm just... Sometimes you encounter demons at Walmart, right? The thing is, is he didn't encounter them in the places you'd expect to encounter demons. This demon was in the house of worship. He was already there, right? You understand that? This demon was basically in church. And this is important, right? Again, because this man was already here. And he was probably likely, you know, a member of this, this synagogue. He was probably a member of this community and probably been there many times and observed the rites and performed all of the worship rituals, but he was a demon-possessed man. Now, now what does that tell us? It tells us just because a person goes to church doesn't mean he or she is actually saved. Just because a person is here on Sunday and sings with all their hearts and lifts up their hands right, and gets all emotional and cries and comes forward at the altar at the invitation, just because they do religious things does not mean they are saved. Salvation is not about church attendance or church membership. Salvation is about your relationship to Christ. And that relationship is about repentance and faith. It's the first message that Jesus preached. You repent of your sins and you put your faith in the gospel. You put your faith in Jesus. And yes, you should come to church. You should be a part of a church family and you should be here faithfully. That is how you grow. That is how you come to know more about Christ. That is how you do life with other Christians and fellowship together. That's how you grow in, in your relationship with Christ because you are a part of the body of Christ. So anybody says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, doesn't love Jesus. I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to tell you right, right now. That's, that's not the truth. You won't find that in the Bible. It is not the truth. You can't love Jesus and hate the body of, of Christ. You might not like some of the people in there. You might get rubbed sideways with some of the people in there, right? But the fact of the matter is, if you love Jesus, you'll love the church. Now, church, but church attendance is not the litmus test. 
And yes, you should also worship with all your heart. I mean, and if, and if you're moved to worship with your hands up, then, then put your hands up, lift them up high. And if you're moved to, to your knees to worship God and cry, you know, during worship that way, then do that with all your heart. But understand, those do, are not the things that make you saved. They're the outworkings of what make you saved. And so just because a person be- appears to be a believer doesn't mean they really are. Right? You can do all the religious things that you want to and get all emotional and claim to be a Christian and just say, I'm a, you know, I'm, we're the Christian t-shirt, but, but doesn't mean that you are saved. Jesus encountered this demon in the house of worship. And notice what happens next. And then he, the demon, cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, there are lots of texts in the Bible that, that give you a reason to like really slow down. Because sometimes we want to read the Bible and we kind of see a part of the story. We think we know it and we just kind of want to get past it. But the reality is, is sometimes you need to slow down and look at the details. Because the Bible is inexhaustible. The Bible is a treasure trove of, of, of truth and wisdom that comes from God. The Bible, as the author of Hebrews tells us, is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to divide you and, and expose in you the truth about who you are. It has the ability to expose you to the truth of the rest of the world. And every text that you read in the Bible, every single verse in the Bible has something to teach us. But there are some texts, though, that we'll look at them and we'll read them and just kind of pass over because we kind of feel like we've got a handle on it. But we really need to slow down because they have a lot to offer us. Like this one here. In fact, let me just let me show you what I mean. The first thing I want you to notice is, is the translation from Greek to English here can be kind of tricky. And, and the first question the demon asks, if you look at it, it's really kind of awkward. It's worded awkward. What have you to do with us, Jesus? That, I don't know if you think about that, but it's, it's really kind of weird. It just, it doesn't resonate. It feels like there's, there's a thought missing. What do you have to do with us? Well, the reason why it sounds weird is because, because, the authors aren't, because the translators aren't trying to just translate just some words. What they recognize in this culture is that's an idiom, right? That's an expression in the culture, and they're trying to, to, to translate that, that idiom. Like, for instance, the idiom that we all use, or most of us use, is, that's cool. That's cool, right? And then, like, 200 years from, from now, people are going to be going, man, people must have been cold all the time because everything was was cool, right? But see, the thing is, is you have to understand there's idioms, there's, there, there are expressions in the text that have a deeper meaning than just the words. And that's what's happening here. This demon is using an idiom from the, from the culture. And, and, and so when he asks, what do you have to do with us? What he's saying is, is what do you want with us? Or, or it can even be translated as, why don't you just leave us alone? Really, that's really what, what, what the purpose of the statement is. The demon knew why Jesus came, that he came to do battle with the enemy, and he was scared, which was reflected in what he says next. He says, have you come to destroy us? I mean, the demon knew that Jesus came to battle the forces of darkness, and he knew that Jesus would ultimately destroy evil in the world, and he was naturally scared. In fact, the question he asks here, again, is another idiom. Have you come to destroy us? Actually, could be better translated as, You've come to destroy us, haven't you? Is really kind of like the expression. So another, so another way it says this, this exchange 
is really the kind of an expression of fear on the part of the demon. And what he's essentially saying is, you've come to destroy us, haven't you? Leave us alone, Jesus of Nazareth. It's really kind of like the point. The demon understands Jesus coming in the world means something big is about to happen. It means his ultimate doom, and he knows his time is limited, so he is naturally terrified. Now, now some people, when they read this text, they kind of get hung up on on the demon's use of the word us, the plural word, us, right? And, they, and you know, when he says, what do you have to do with us, right? Have you come to destroy us? And they do so wondering if this is one demon or, or multiple demons in this man, like Jesus' encounter in, in, uh, Math, in Mark chapter five where, he, where, where it says that Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion for we are many. Now the reality is, there's a whole lot of debate about this. This is the kind of stuff that scholars write like lots of books about. Um, you know, whether this is one or, or multiple demons. But the truth is, that's not even really the important, the important part of this text here. What's important is the fact what the demon is saying here communicates a lot about him. It communicates a lot about who Christ is. But it ultimately, if we'll really look close enough, it communicates a lot about us. You see, the first thing that you need to see here is the fact that the demon knows Jesus. He knows who he is. He knows a lot about him. Notice he says, what do you have to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I know that you're the Holy One of God. This demon knows Jesus' name. He knows where he's from. Probably knew where he grew up. But he doesn't just know about Jesus. He knows Jesus. He understands who Jesus really is. The demon knows that Jesus is not just some nobody from nowhere. He knows that he's not just some obscure guy from some, you know, place in Nazareth. He knows that Jesus is not just a teacher or a rabbi. He knows that he is the Holy One of God. He knows that Jesus is God in the flesh. You see, not only does, does he know Jesus is, you know, not only does he know Jesus, this demon also has a high theological view of Jesus. Higher than probably about everybody in the room at the time. Because I want you to notice, he recognizes Jesus' divine nature. He recognizes Jesus' divinity. He knows that Jesus is not just some created being. He knows that he is the eternal son of God, and he addresses him as such. He goes, I know that you're the holy one of God. I know who you are. I mean, you might look like some scruffy, you know, rabbi from backwater, you know, uh, Nazareth that nobody's ever heard of, but I know that you're the son of God. It's really kind of like what he's communicating here. But he also recognizes Jesus' humanity. He identifies him both as the divine son, the holy one of God, and also the man, Jesus from Nazareth. See, not only does he recognize Jesus' divine nature, but he also acknowledges the truth and the reality of the incarnation. The fact that God became flesh. Jesus is not some created being. Jesus is, a, is the eternal God, the Son, who came to the earth fully God and became fully man. The truth of the incarnation, the truth of, of the God-man, Jesus Christ, is so clear that even the demons acknowledge it. But not only does he acknowledge the incarnation, but he also recognizes Jesus, right? And not only does he recognize Jesus as God, he also understands Jesus' role in the end times, or, the, or eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for end times. 
So if you want to impress your friends, say eschatology. But he knows, he understands Jesus' role in the end times, that, he, that, that Jesus has a part to play. He knows why Jesus came. He knows that Jesus was, came to set the whole world right. He knows that, that Jesus came to, to make all things new. That's why he's worried. He knows that when the king comes, the kingdom follows with him, and, and that judgment follows right after that. He knows what's, what's coming. That's why he asks, have you come to destroy us? He knows that Jesus will be the judge in the end. He knows that that Jesus will come and put an end to all the enemies and put them all in submission under his feet. He even knows that the devil himself will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus, the judge, will bring all that about. So he understands Jesus' role in eschatology, but he also acknowledges Jesus' power. Have you come to destroy us? That's a recognition of the fact that Jesus can do that. He understands and acknowledges Jesus is all-powerful. And there's nothing he can't do. And the demon understands and acknowledges Christ's divine power. And that power, then, is demonstrated in the very next two verses. It says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. See, the demon not only understood and acknowledged the power of Jesus, he also submits to Jesus' authority. He obeys the command of Christ himself. Who do you have to be that at your word a demon obeys you? Right? He says, shut up and get out. That's exactly what he did. And I want you to notice, like, this is not like the movies. Like, Jesus didn't have to, like, you know, do some, some, some ritual. He didn't have to perform some right. He didn't have to put on some robes. He didn't have to throw some holy water around. You know, we, we've all seen some of those movies, right? And he didn't have to like, you know, make the sign of a crucifix. He didn't have to do anything. He just said the words, shut up and get out. He had to obey him. So at the command of Jesus' words, the demon submitted to his authority, and he was cast out. And again, it shocked everyone, right? Everyone in the synagogue was shocked. Mark says they were, they were all amazed so they, they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus absolutely demonstrated for this gathering in Capernaum his power and his authority. He demonstrated that his authority, you know, not in just, just, just reading the word, but to actually proclaim the word of God. As one commentator notes, that Jesus' word presented with sovereign authority permitted neither debate or theoretical reflection. Jesus spoke, right, and his, and his absolute authority to speak was clear. That's why they were astonished. They were shocked. They'd never heard anybody teach like this. He spoke with the authority of God himself. Jesus established his authority first by, by preaching, by declaring his word, and then he confirmed his authority by his deeds and casting out demons. By the way, that's the reason why Jesus did miracles. Everybody wants to say Jesus did miracles because he's a good guy. That's a side effect. That's, that's, a, that's a side benefit. But he did miracles to establish who he was. Right? Notice the two go hand in hand here. They were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus is declaring the gospel, the good news. And then he, and then he commands even 
the unclean spirits and they obey him. He demonstrates his authority by his action. Jesus has absolute authority. Now, from the very beginning of this letter, and like I said, we're still in chapter 1, right? But from the beginning of this letter, Mark has, has made a point to clearly identify who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that Jesus is God in the flesh. So, so here in this text, Mark goes and he validates that truth, and he demonstrates that Jesus, being God in the flesh, has absolute authority, right? right? That's the truth, right? It's, it's clear, and, and even the, the demon acknowledges his authority. And this right here is kind of the point, of the, it is the point of the text. It's not kind of the point, it is the point of the text. Jesus is the absolute authority. Jesus has authority over everything. He is the sovereign king. He is the Lord. And he's not the Lord over just some things. He's the Lord over all things. He has the power over mankind. He has the power over the weather. He has power over the spiritual forces of darkness. He has power over all of creation. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority, not some, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And so, and so far in this first book, Mark has made a point to establish who Jesus is and the authority that he has. And, and again, that's the point of this text. Right? If you want to know what the point of this particular passage is, that's it. That Jesus is the sovereign Lord over everything, including your life. And if you're going to follow him, then you need to let him be the Lord. You need to acknowledge him as the Lord in your life. But as we wrap up today, I just want to talk to you about something that's really bugging me about this text. Because there's something that has really been like weighing heavy on me that's caused me to think. I mean, I've read this text over and over and over and over again in preparation for, for this message alone. I've read this you know, text many times, but I've probably read this particular verse probably 25, 30 times. Right? And, 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 in, and there's, there's a troubling question that kind of keeps popping up in my mind as I read it. And the question is this. What's the difference between you and that demon? What's the difference between de that demon and, 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 and me and, and, and us collectively? And I'm not saying that to be silly. But it's a question that, that's been weighing heavily on me. Because, because here the, here's this demon. He has this encounter with, with the king of kings and his reaction is to fear Christ. He recognizes that there is a coming judgment, right? And he's going to pay dearly for the rebellion that he has against God, and he is doomed, and he is desperate, and he is helpless, just like all of us. We're helpless and desperate. And if we die in our sins, we're going to face the judgment of God, just like this demon will. So what's the difference between us and him? And again, I'm not trying to be cute here, right? Because I do know that there is a difference. I understand that there is a difference. But I, but I think that many, I think the way that many people the way that many people approach the gospel and the way that many people actually approach Christ, claiming to be Christians, really are no better off than this demon. I mean, think about this. This demon knows who Jesus is. He knew Jesus. And, and this is important because, because so many people equivocate salvation with knowing Jesus. I mean, the, the people ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? I mean, that was something that I heard when I was a kid all the time. Do you know Jesus Christ? Right? 
Like, like that's, that's what it takes to be saved, is you need to know Jesus Christ. But understand, just knowing Jesus isn't the answer. Right? The demon knows Jesus, and he knew him very well, and he was still doomed. And notice, notice this demon also had a high biblical view of Christ. This demon had a really high theology of Jesus. Right? I mean, he recognizes that Jesus is he's divine. Right? He knows that, that he's dealing with God in the flesh. He acknowledges the incarnation. He understands that, that, that God came to the earth. That, that he is the, the God-man. He understands that whole identity that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Right? He, he, he gets that. He understands eschatology. He knows that Jesus is coming to, the, to, uh, to bring final things final. That there's going to be a judgment to come. Right? And there's literally going to be hell to pay for those in rebellion. And he acknowledges Jesus' power. He knows that Jesus is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. This demon has a really high theological view of Christ. He probably is really, really well-versed on the Trinity. He probably has a higher view of Christ than many people today. But, sim- but simply having the right theology isn't what saves you. Right? Knowing all the right answers to the questions is not what saves you. Now, don't misunderstand me. Theology is important. And you cannot be saved by a Jesus you don't know. What you believe about Jesus is absolutely critical to your salvation. What you believe about the gospel is crucial, and and the Christian life is founded on sound theology. But that is not what saves you. Being able to recite out of a systematic theology book is not going to get it done. As James says, you believe that God is one, right? A theological statement. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. You see, the important, this is important because many people believe that you're saved because you, you, you have the right knowledge about God, that you believe the right things about, about Christ, that, that since you have the right understanding, right? But, but salvation is more than that. Believing in the Trinity and the incarnation and the divinity of Christ are important for you to know, but that's not the thing that saves you. You must believe those things to be saved. But that's not the mechanism to be saved because the demon believed these things and it was not saved. And notice, not only did the demon know Jesus and have a high theology of Jesus, but the demon also submitted to Christ's authority. He obeyed the command of God. Jesus said, shut up and get out, and that's exactly what he did. Even the demons have to obey him. But some Christians think that obedience is the key to salvation, that you need to do the right stuff. You need to keep the right set of rules. You need to keep doing the right kind of activities. You need to just keep you know, making sure you're obedient, obedient, submitting you know, to his authority. But what we see here is the demons did exactly that and still are damned. They have no choice but to obey Christ. Obedience to the command of Jesus is, is, is important, but that's not what saves you. Now, all of this should really cause you to stop and reflect about the implications of this. Because because if knowing Jesus isn't enough and and having the right theology isn't enough and submitting to his authority isn't enough, then what's the difference between you and him? What makes you saved and the demon not? Is it your church attendance? Well, no, because we know that, that demons can attend church. Is it because you're in a, in a really great Bible study, you know, and it's really exegetical in nature? The devil knows the, the, the Bible and, and the scriptures more than you will ever know. 
That's what he tried to use against Jesus when he tempted him. Is it because I tithe? Nope. Is it because I'm compassionate and loving to my neighbor? There are atheists in our own community who can do that, who actually do a good job of reaching out in the community and meeting people's needs. So that's not it either. So it's none of that. So what is it? What's the difference between you and that demon? What's the difference between me and that demon? This is an important question. I mean, I mean, he knew Jesus, had the right theology of Jesus, and he obeys his commands. So why are you saved and that demon not? The difference, brothers and sisters in Christ, is, it, is what Jesus calls us to when he preaches the gospel. He calls us to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith is the difference. You see, the demon, the demon won't repent of his sin. He won't repent of his rebellion against God. Even facing the prospect of his own destruction, he won't repent. He can't repent. Just like many non-believers around us, people who, who curse God right now in their hearts, they acknowledge, they know that he's real. They know. The Bible makes it really, really clear that there's not a real atheist in the world. There's not. Everybody knows there's a God somewhere, but they just refuse to repent. They love their sin more than they love God. The difference between this demon who is damned and those who receive eternal life are those who follow Christ's call to repent of their sin and believe the gospel. That's the difference. And so what this tells us is that if you, if, if you know Jesus and you believe the right things about Jesus and you're really good about being obedient to that list of rules that somebody gave you, but you don't really repent of your sin and you don't repent of your self-righteousness and you don't repent of, of your rebellion against God, if you don't tell, you know, take all of your hope off of yourself and throw all that hope on Jesus alone, you're not saved. You must repent and believe the gospel. But again, the problem is that nobody wants to talk about repentance anymore. So, many, so few people want to talk about the real gospel. And so what's happened is, is the church over the last 50 years has, has grown up with a false understanding of what it means to be saved. I mean, there are many people right now will tell you that the reason why they're saved is because they prayed a prayer. That there's a formula prayer that somebody led them through, right? And that now they're saved. You say, well, why are you saved? Well, because I said the sinner's prayer. So I would, like, I would like to invite anyone here to show me where that prayer is. It's not in here. It's not in here. There's not a formula prayer that saves anyone. Should we pray to receive Christ? Absolutely. Should we, receive, should we pray to receive his forgiveness? Absolutely. But there is no sinner's prayer that saves anyone. But there are lots of people who say, I'm saved because when I was in BBS or when I was in kindergarten or when I was you know, in high school or, or just last week, I prayed some prayer. Just because you prayed a prayer doesn't mean that you're saved. Another teaching in the church that misses the mark completely is this teaching that if you'll just invite Jesus into your heart, right, he will save you. If you'll just invite him in, if you will just invite Jesus into your heart, he will save you. Well, how convenient for me. Jesus, come on in. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that teaching. The sentiment behind that teaching is that, that Jesus is there to give salvation and we need to receive him. 
right? But the problem is, is that this teaching gets combined with the idea that, 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 that misses out. Like, because we don't teach on the depravity of man or the horrendousness of our sin or the need of repentance. And so it changes the, the meaning of what it means for people to think about Jesus being invited in their heart. You see, the picture that a lot of people have today in the church is, is this. Jesus helplessly standing outside the door, knocking on the door, meekly, you know, let me in. If you'll just let me in, I will help you. If you'll just let me in, I will make all your life better. If you'll just let me in, you won't ever have any more hurt feelings. If you just let me in, you can have all the material blessings that that you want. And then you, in your own sovereign power, you get to decide whether or not you're going to let him in. Well, Jesus, you know what? Come on in. You made a really compelling case that you love me. You made this really compelling case, right, that, that, that you want what's best for me. Well, guess what? I want what's best for me too. So come on in, Jesus. I invite you into my heart. Church, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're just like that demon. You have rebelled against the holy and righteous God who made you. You have sinned even before you even knew what sin was. You are a broken, helpless wretch, and you are totally depraved. And what that means is you're not a good person who sometimes makes mistakes. You are a broken person who is only capable of doing good things because the grace of God is restraining you from doing all the bad that you and your heart want to do. And sometimes you want to do bad. Like, let somebody cut you off in traffic, right? Right? there's the bad you starts popping out really, really fast, all right? Miss, Miss Ann Bates was at my house, and she had to witness this. She's getting her nails done by Kim, you know? And I'm on the phone with customer service, okay? And bad Sherman's, like, wanting to rise up, you know? There's, there's that part of me that really wants to get irritated. I'm going, I got a member of my church in here. I got to, you know, dial. It's only by the grace of God that you are restraining yourself to be as good as you are. The fact of the matter is, you are a sinner, And because you're a sinner, you were depraved. And because of that, you, like that demon, faced a judgment of God. And that judgment, that demon knew what that judgment meant. It meant destruction. And that means being cast into hell. Because that's what rebels and sinners deserve. That's what what you deserve. That's what I deserve. I I know this guy. And you can tremble. That's all you can do is tremble and and, and fear and hopelessness. But, But then, the good news God came to the earth. He became fully man, and he lived a perfect, righteous life, a life that you could never, ever, ever in all of your whole life live. And he voluntarily went to the cross, and he traded places with you. He took upon himself your rebellion and your sin. He became sin who knew no sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. He took upon himself, your sin on himself, and in return, he offers you the righteousness of God. And as he hung there on the cross, slowly suffocating to death in that desert sun, as his, as his shoulders are coming out of its socket, he experienced in his body the fullness of the wrath of God that you deserved, the, the, the wrath that was reserved for you personally. And suffering the wrath of God, he died the death that you deserved. And then three days later, he was resurrected 
as proof positive that your debt has been paid in full and that Jesus, God in the flesh, has the power of both sin and death and that he is the sovereign reigning king. And so let me, so hear me, church, on this. This is the most important parts. Jesus doesn't tap lightly on the door saying, please, please let me in. No, he's standing out in the street saying, it is finished. The time is now. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what he's saying. And your response isn't to, come on in, Jesus, into my heart. No, your, your response is to fall face down at the feet of Jesus and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me, Lord, for my iniquities. I repent of my sins. I turn away from my old life. I repent of my self-righteousness. I repent of trying to save myself. Save me, Lord Jesus. I repent and I believe the gospel. I take you at your, your word. I confess that I am what you say that I am, that I'm a broken sinner, and I confess that I desperately, desperately need you. And I believe that Jesus is exactly what he says, he God in the flesh, and that he died for my sins, and he, and he gives to me the righteousness that I don't deserve. And I believe that he rose again three days later, and I believe that he is right now at the right hand of God interceding for me. And I believe that he will come back and make all things right. I believe with all my heart that he is the sovereign king. I don't just ask Jesus to come into my heart. I beg you, Lord, to come and be the Lord of my life. Come into my life and have your way with me. I beg you, Lord, to come into my life and mold me and shape me into what you want. Remove from me what you will. Come into my life, Lord, and take over. Lead me to go where you want me to go. I repent and I believe the gospel. I am yours, Lord Jesus. Have your way in my life. That is the gospel. That is the difference between you and the demon. The demon knew Christ personally and theologically and was bound to obey him. But he was not saved because he was incapable of repenting and turning from his rebellion against God. Church, the things that you need to remember always. Jesus didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. And the exhibition of your changed heart is your repentance and your faith in the gospel. So let's all take a moment and bow our heads and close our eyes. Because this is the message that calls for a response. All of us all of us have to walk the same path. There is no self-righteousness. There is no, I can do things good enough to make God love me. God loved you because he decided to love you. And he loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. And so if you're someone who has not taken that step in your life, if you're someone who has not actually really understood what it means to trust in Jesus, but you've heard a message now and your heart is pierced and you're ready to repent of your sins and turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're ready to receive him as your Lord and Savior, you're ready to follow him, then would you raise your hand? No one's looking. No one's gonna call you out. If you're ready to make Jesus your Savior, I see you. I see you. Praise the Lord. I see you. So with me, I'm not going to lead you in a magical, miracle formula prayer. I just want to just pierce your heart and then maybe give you some words that you can pray yourself. 
And that prayer, or that, that simply is repent. And what that means is you need to turn away from your sins so you can turn towards God. You need to let go of what your old life is and grab a hold of what God is. Now, does that mean you're going to be perfect? No, you will not be perfect. But by repenting in faith, you are demonstrating that something happened inside of you, that Jesus is changing your heart. And if you will turn to him in faith, the Holy Spirit will fill you up and you will then belong to God and he will never be, you will never be able to be plucked out of his hands. And you will begin to live a life that is demonstrated of continual repentance and faith because repentance and faith are present tense words that Jesus used. And so if you're ready to repent and believe, then, then pray with me this. And you can just repeat this right where you are. Heavenly Father, I recognize I am a sinner and I am unable to save myself. I recognize that I am depraved thoroughly and that only by your grace can I do anything good. And I recognize that I am in desperate need of salvation. I recognize that there is a judgment that it's going to fall upon me. But I also recognize that you, for some reason, decided to love me and send your son to die for me. And so, Lord, in faith today, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. In faith today, I turn and I say, I believe in Jesus and put all my trust and my hope into him. And I pray that you would fill me up with the Holy Spirit to confirm for me that I belong to you and that, Lord, that you would help me to follow you as the Lord of my life forever and ever and ever. I thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.